Hello and thank you for joining us for episode 8 of Celluloid Junkies. This is Luke Kane and I am married to my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. While secretly being in love with my other co-host Cameron Crothers. Hey babe. This month we are embroiling ourselves in romantic entanglements whilst battling an existential crisis as we look back at Woody Allen's eloquent dramedy, Hannah and Her Sisters. There's something very lovely and real about Hannah. She gives me a very deep feeling of being part of something. Did you ever read this one? Lee, 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 I'm in love with you. You mentioned to me yourself that you and Elliot were having some problems. You were having problems, and problems that are my business, which I don't see how you could know about in such detail. It's a good thing we had a talented daughter. I can only hope that she was mine. With you as her mother, her father could be anybody in actor's equity. Two months ago, you thought you had a malignant melanoma. Naturally, I, I, you know, I had the sudden appearance of a black spot on my back. It was on your shirt. I'm going to cry. You want my husband to have a child with you? Yeah, d- don't answer now. Just, you know, take it home and think about it for a while. God, I should have married you years ago when you wanted to. I should have agreed. Oh, God, don't you know it never would have worked? It's an epiphany of the soul, if you know what I mean. I... No, I know exactly what you mean, Tom. I don't know if you remember me, but we had the worst night of my life together. Woody Allen was already an established writer-director by 1984, with a series of successes to his name, most notably Annie Hall in 1977 and Manhattan in 1979. His latest film, The Purple Rose of Cairo, was about to go into production when Allen sat down to write his next film. At first he only had a title, Hannah and Her Sisters, drawing inspiration from Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and Chekhov's play Three Sisters. Allen envisioned a movie that played out like a novel with title cards denoting chapters that weave together an ensemble cast connected by blood, marriage, and friendship. The film explores the interpersonal relationships of three sisters, Hannah, Lee, and Holly, as they struggle to find creative and emotional fulfillment in the city of dreams. It's a feel-good comedy, punctuated by adultery, a brain tumor scare, infertility, drug abuse, a suicide attempt, and the meaninglessness of everything. Woody Allen handed the script over to his then-wife Mia Farrow, telling her that she could play any role she wanted. This would be their fifth collaboration. After expressing reservations about the script, Farrow elected to play Hannah, perhaps because it was the character that Allen had modelled on her. To cast the remaining roles, Allen liaised with his long-standing casting director Juliette Taylor, and production began on location in the fall of 1984 with a $6 million budget. Because of a scheduling conflict, Alan's usual cinematographer Gordon Willis was unavailable, so Alan hired Carlo De Palma, whom he'd always wanted to work with, beginning a collaboration that continued for 12 successive films. It was a difficult shoot, particularly for Mia Farrow. Not only was the actress's apartment used as the home her character shared with her on-screen husband, played by Michael Caine, but Alan cast Farrow's real-life mother Maureen O'Sullivan to portray her mother in the film. 
Even Farrow's children can be spotted around the table during the Thanksgiving scenes, further blurring the line between fiction and reality. After filming wrapped, Alan was unhappy with the results and called for some major reshoots. He struggled to make the melancholic ending work. As written, Elliot was to remain stuck in an unsatisfying marriage with Hannah, and Alan's character Mickey failed to resolve his inner turmoil about the meaninglessness of life. Unable to turn it into an absorbing tragedy, Alan shifted gears and wrote a more upbeat ending. The film benefited from the change, but Alan remained displeased that his original vision for the film was never realised. Released on the 7th of February 1986 with a running time of 106 minutes, Hannah and her sisters grossed $40 million at the box office, Alan's biggest commercial hit at that time, and was a critical success, admired for its humour and pathos, the complexity of its characters and the density of the narrative. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and won three, with Michael Caine and Diane Weist picking up the Supporting Actor-Actress categories, and Woody Allen taking home the prize for Best Original Screenplay. In many ways, Hannah and her sister remains the finest example of Allen's work. So join us as we look back in appreciation of this remarkable film. Game over, man! It's game over! We should just say quickly about, um, because it's been a very big week for movie news. We've had probably the most significant news was the passing of Bill Paxton at 61, which was really awful. Uh, and also Best Picture went to La La Land, I mean Moonlight. I, yeah, I was really upset when he died. I, I had just listened to a podcast he did with Mark Maron two weeks prior to that. Really? And he's so upbeat and so like just a lovely lovely guy and he's as much as he had did some cheesy movies and some cheesy sort of stuff he's so much fun to watch and twister is one of my favorite like action films like it's one of your favorites too isn't it damien i enjoy it yeah but he was he was in a lot of um you know he was collaborated with james cameron quite a bit and he was with uh he was in near dark which is my favorite vampire movie so yeah he was in a lot of films that i had fun with I'm just trying to work out why you guys are laughing at me when I say Twister. <laughs> I don't it's like just, Twister. Twister's oh. just a funny film to like. Oh, it, as, a dis- as a disaster film, I think it's pretty solid. It is. Yeah, no, it's a good, good, enjoyable movie that's... Twister was pretty bad. The dialogue was pretty awful. The characters were bad. Cows <laughs> were flying. Yeah, it's fun trash, though. Some yeah. of the effects are good. Five stars. <laughs> and also, on that note, this kind of ties in as our Carrie Fisher tribute episode. Yes. And we picked it, I think, a couple of days before Carrie Fisher passed away. Yeah, and uh, she's she's good in this. She sort of plays the exact same role she was playing in When Harry Met Sally. Sort of that single 30-something lady, urban lady. But she's lots of fun. She seems to just suit Woody Allen's sensibilities really well. I just thought urban lady. <laughs> well, you know, she's not rural. sisters differs a lot from Woody Allen's previous output in that I guess for 10 years he was making pretty funny lightweight movies and then for 10 years he was making pretty difficult movies about relationships and not necessarily relationships that work out in most cases they didn't work out so just 
because this one has a, a different ending and a different feel to it. It's it's different in that respect, and it becomes life affirming because it's not as pessimistic as his other work. I think it's funny that he, he's got this character in the film that he's playing Mickey, who's like a lot of his Woody Allen characters before, but Woody Allen in his big two films to that point, Annie Hall and Manhattan, was alone at the end of those movies, and so, or at least he wasn't in relationship with the person that he wanted to be in a relationship with and so for Hannah and her sisters to end the way that it does is completely different for what most people have known about Woody Allen before and there's a quote by James Walcott in the Texas Monthly from the time and he starts it by saying in Hannah and her sisters Woody Allen once again asks if life is worth living but this time the answer is yes I really like that quote because that's that's what the film feels like. It's life-affirming for a number of other reasons, though. Uh, He's a hypochondriac and he appears close to death in one scene that's later revealed as just a daydream or a thought. Uh, When he finds out he's fine, essentially soon after that he embraces life and rights his wrongs, which is, in this movie, a lot of that has to do with Holly and his original date with Holly that you get the flashback to and then... He meets her in the record store, which is my favourite scene in the movie. Lee leaves Frederick, who's a grumpy, obtuse recluse who hasn't finished his teaching of her, which is a condescension, and she can't handle being shut in and away from the world, so she wants to embrace life again. Hannah is the person that keeps everybody together, herself, her marriage and her family. She's even her parents' keeper. She excuses her husband, even though she does that unknowingly. And she's her sister's financial aid. So she's literally keeping... She's the glue keeping everybody together. Elliot returns to Hannah happily despite his sexual relationship with Lee and Lee moves on to her college tutor. And that kind of stops us from having this explosive confession scene that I think we're all waiting for when we watch Hannah and her sisters but that's one of the good things about the movie is that it doesn't really judge so you don't need that confession scene you don't need to see the Hannah's response to all of this stuff this is just a part of life that happens and it's happened and they move on obviously the ending is happy but Mickey's journey itself is a culmination of Woody Allen's own cinematic journey over the past decade and probably longer for his personal journey. And I love this quote from Roger Ebert's review, and I'll read it now because it ties into this. There's a scene in the movie where Michael Caine confronts Barbara Hershey and tells her that he loves her. She is stunned, does not know what to say, but does not categorically deny that she has feelings for him. After she leaves him, he stands alone on the street, ecstatic, his face glowing, saying, I've got my answer, I've got my answer. Underlying all of Hannah and her sisters is the envy of Mickey and Woody that anyone could actually be happy enough and lucky enough to make such a statement. And yet, by the end of the movie, in his own way, Mickey has his answer too. I really love that quote from Rodri, but I think that sums up the movie and I think Woody Allen's journey to get to that ending pretty well, even though he doesn't like the ending. There's a lot about the movie that is life-affirming, and I think it's... It would be pretty difficult for Woody Allen to have got to the point where he'd had this ending in his head that was this tragedy where things don't work out yet again in a Woody Allen movie. He's got this particular idea in his head, and especially about something like the climax of the movie um, that can't come to fruition. It ultimately ends up changing the entire perspective of the film that he's worked so hard. He's had this idea in his head for so long. He's written it down on paper. Uh, I think that's really strange that one move can change the entire perspective of the movie. Because if it had ended the way it originally was going to, it would have been a different movie. Yeah. 
I think you're absolutely right about we are waiting for that confession. Obviously, the central thread of the film is the uh, affair with Lee. Mm. And, you know, we're all waiting for that to come to a head. And it resolves itself quietly and without it being this big um, admission. But what's interesting is while they're having the affair, we're never really given the sense, like, we, we don't get the sense of wrongness about it. And I think for a number of reasons, one, we don't see Hannah very much. So there's no one who's being victimized by it for us to really identify with and get to know. But also the way that the affair is done, it's done in a really beautiful way. It's done with, you know, um, like these cutesy, awkward exchanges. It's done with those beautiful piano strings of bewitched, bothered and bewildered. It it sort of romanticizes it, this kind of affair. It's certainly not just sexually based. There's genuine feeling between these two people. And also I think Max von Sydow's character makes us a little bit sympathetic to Lee and her situation as well. Yeah. So she, you do want her to kind of escape that because he is condescending at times. He is, but then the scene where she breaks up with him and he says, I knew you'd or leave me for a younger man is really heartbreaking. You're suddenly like aware that you, you, you do feel bad for him. Yeah, but it's just a mismatch of personalities, really. People with money are having the same problems that people that with that don't have money are like for me that's kind of like <laughs> in the yeah. same situation like because the same people are still making idiotic decisions and yeah there is a separateness to these characters as there are in all Woody Allen films most of them don't work they're all very much inside the New York arts literature scene yeah I, I've, I've called them several times in my notes the like intellectual elite that's what they are. Yeah, yeah. And they've just got all this time to explore their neuroses because they don't have to deal with the practicalities of life. That's the thing, the time to explore your neuroses. Like, yeah. like, like in mo- most human beings don't have that yeah. like luxury to have the time to go, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do now kind yeah. of thing. It's usually just like, I need to get up today. That's right. But it's really fun for people who do have to contend with mostly practicalities to just to watch a group of people who can just be so introspective and spend all of this time exploring how they really feel about this and that. Uh, I think another reason why it's life-affirming is because all these characters are reaching for something. Whenever you see a character that really wants something, even if it's wrong to want it, like in the case of Elliot, that's always going to be kind of um, powerfully... uh, It's a powerfully optimistic thing. You know, people who are passionate, who desire something and who go for it. uh, That's really wonderful. And this film is all about that, people reaching for something. Even Mickey is reaching for... Uh, the reason to go on, the reason to get up out of bed. Well, Mickey's journey, and obviously we'll get to this later, is grander than everybody else's journey, I think. Um, but Holly's journey is... She's, it's so much smaller in a, in some respect. You know, she's not having this affair, so it's, it's less. It's like she's very flighty about what she's doing. Yes. And she has a different idea every week about what she wants to do, or seemingly every week. But... She feels like the one person who isn't part of this intellectual elite. And she's the one person who does want to work. Mm. And also she feels like the one that's the closest to skirting the edges, like she's going to fall off. She's the most unstable, the most fractured. And all of them are pretty fractured, except for Hannah. What is Hannah striving for? 
That's a good question. And Hannah is, we're going to, I think, talk about that a little bit later. I really like the title of the film, Hannah and Her Sisters, because it creates a divide. Like it very, you know, Hannah and her sisters, the two other sisters are grouped together and you could pretty much group everybody else in that other side of it. Because Hannah isn't, I mean, I think Hannah is is reaching for to be a good mother, Mm. to have a great career, to um, look after everybody, to keep everybody together. Uh, I think her, but I think her ambitions and her passions she's not without anything she's just trying to hold on to what she's already got what she believes she has a devoted husband and um you know uh, connected children i guess being the person who's looking after her parents and sorting out their problems a lot she she doesn't want this brokenness in her house so she's striving to make sure that she doesn't have that Mm. Uh, and to an extent failing. The 57-year-old filmmaker and his longtime lover, Mia Farrow, broke up. And now Alan confirms he is having an affair with Farrow's adopted daughter, who's 21 years old. I wanted to talk about the separating the art from the artist because that has come up again this year with Casey Affleck in the Oscar race. Um, Obviously, he's settled to sexual harassment allegations. Um, out of court and then a lot of people are saying well Nate Parker who did Birth of a Nation he was acquitted of a rape charge years and years before that and then that's pretty much killed like Birth of a Nation uh, got sold for the highest amount ever purchased at Sundance or something I think and then everyone's like this is going to be an Oscar thing this is going to be you know all of that kind of thing and then it just died because of that that rape allegation thing came up which he was acquitted of, and that was fine. Cassie Affleck settled something outside of court, and no one... He wasn't really pushed on it. At all. It didn't change it, and we now know who won. I mean, I'm all for separating art, the, separating the art from the artist, but, like, there is a scene in this film where Sun Yi is in the thing, and I, she's a child, and, I, and it... And it just made me feel so strange. Like, I'm so used to, like, going, out, well, you know, whatever, let them do their thing. But then when you see, like, a four- or five-year-old kid and then you've just seen Woody Allen in a scene previous and he's a balding man, that that made me feel a bit strange. So, like, I was wondering what you guys thought about the whole idea of, like, separating the art from the artist in terms of, I guess you got, like, Polanski and stuff as well, that kind of thing. Well, specifically about Woody Allen, apparently it began when she was an adult. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's, I suppose, the first thing to consider. And the second thing is they've been married now for... 20 years. Yeah, so, I mean, she's not a little girl anymore. We've talked about this heaps, Cameron, and we both feel exactly the same way about this. I don't think you can hold art to a set of moral principles. I think when you start doing that, you're reverting back to the Hayes production code. I mean, we would have to throw out Polanski's films. We would have to... And imagine all the artists throughout history whose work we would have to deny ourselves because perhaps they weren't stand-up people Mm. we're not celebrating the person we're celebrating what they've produced we're we're celebrating the work and i I just think it's wrong there's a very gray area around woody allen though in particular about you know what he did and whether he did anything that was wrong but certainly i think he did things that were kind of morally questionable and mia farrow certainly thinks that he did yeah it's difficult to judge. You're not in that situation. You're not in... You don't know personally what went on. No. And we aren't the judge and jurors. That's right. And also, Woody Allen has... Uh, talking about art, I think, Woody Allen has obviously created great art many times over. Mm. And it's really difficult 
not to enjoy that art just because of the person unless you really really don't like the art i mean if you don't like the art you can hate woody allen but if you respect the films that he's made it's it's difficult to judge that person you you give them you give them some leniency because you don't know the situation um, they, this came out a few months ago because um, Meryl Streep at the Golden Globes said something about Donald Trump and then the right wing started saying that oh, Meryl Streep gave a rapist a standing ovation when she stood up and clapped for Roman Polanski when he won Best Director for The Pianist. You know, they're two, they're two very separate yeah. things. It just shows how it's kind of devolving into absurdity. Yeah. Oh, well, I looked twice at somebody who was a child molester, so I must be an awful person. Social media is giving us, everybody, this podium to kind of expound their self-righteous flatulence i mean we've all become these these you know i don't know figures of of, of moral determination yeah, it's the, yeah we're the gatekeepers behind a fucking keyboard like yeah. it's, it makes no it makes no sense to me whatsoever but can we not i mean like the real story should have been the fact that nicole kidman developed a new clap <laughs> It was the fucking most bizarre thing I've yeah. ever seen. She looked like a lizard. <laughs> but not as bizarre as Winona Ryder's many faces when that yes. director of Stranger Things won that award. These are the things I want to talk about. These are the things I want to see on social media. Look, I haven't seen Manchester by the Sea. I'm sure it's a fantastic performance. If it was the best performance, Casey Affleck should have won. Great. We are celebrating the work, not the man. Johnny Depp should not be not cast. Mel Gibson should not be not allowed to make films. It's just... It, it's too much. It's ridiculous. The other thing is that we're talking about people who are in a very, very public space. All of yeah. these people. And who among us can say we've never cheated on our wives or husbands? <laughs> well, that just got a bit personal. <laughs> I don't know where to pivot from here. I'll be honest with you. I can't do a Kellyanne Conway here. That's a quote from The Simpsons, Cameron. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't pick it up. But, but everybody has done things that they're probably not proud of, that if they were in a, a very um, public very space and they were being watched by millions of people, mm. they would be ashamed that those things got out. Yep. These situations sometimes wouldn't even arise if these people weren't specifically celebrities as well. Like There yeah. are a couple of situations like that. But yeah, for, yeah, for sure. The fact that it gets played out in an open forum that they yeah. have no control over is, is troubling. So I feel like they should all get Oscars. I think someone like the President of the United States needs to be held account for the way they behave because the President is essentially supposed to be kind of an idealistic model for how to live your life and, and uh, how to make decisions. But if you're an actor... I mean, actors don't even really need an education. And it's, 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 just, it's just the work. Uh, we can't deny ourselves great art, art that means something, art that moves people, that uplifts, inspires, transforms, because one participant in it may have done something questionable. That's what the courts are for. And let the courts decide. Everybody else just needs to shut up. I agree. Nikki, you're off the hook. You should be celebrating. Can you understand how meaningless everything is? Everything I'm talking about. Our lives, the show, the whole world, it's meaningless. Yeah, but you're not dying. No, I'm not dying now. But, but you know, when I ran out of the hospital, I, I was so thrilled because they told me I was going to be all right. And I'm running down the street and suddenly I stopped because it hit me. All right, so, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go today. I'm okay. I'm not going to go tomorrow. 
but eventually I'm going to be in that position. You're just realizing this now? No, I don't realize it now. I know it all the time, but, but I managed to stick it in the back of my mind because it's a very horrible thing to think about. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you a secret? Yes, please. A week ago, I bought a rifle. I went to the store, I bought a rifle. I was going to, you know, if they told me that I had a tumor, I was going to kill myself. The only thing that might have stopped me, might have, is my parents would be devastated. I would, I would have had to shoot them also first. And then I have an aunt and uncle. I would have, you know, it would have been a bloodbath. Not only is Mickey largely unattached from the rest of the cast throughout most of the movie, so that's, that's one difference there. But his, mo- his uh, story, his story arc is a more universal thing. It, it covers everything. Um, this existential crisis that Woody Allen goes through in all of his movies that affects all of his relationships is present here, but it's just it's just about life this time. And the good thing that he gets out of it when he overcomes this is a relationship, but it's a byproduct of what's happening to him. He's, he's thinking life and death and the meaninglessness of life. And the other characters are all grappling with these day-to-day uncertainties. They're, own, they're questioning their own motives and their own situations. For instance, Holly can't find a place in the world. So, you know, is she an actress, a caterer, a writer? Will David choose to drop her off last? What does it mean that he's picked April? So it's all these little questions. And she's unsure of everything. And Lee, you know, she's with Frederick, as we talked about. He's grumpy, but she's a breath of fresh air. So should she, should she stay or should she go? And does she love Elliot or is he just different, more exciting? Why is she doing this to Hannah? You know, so there's all these little internal questions that they're grappling with. And the the really amazing thing about this movie is that when, you know, you get this three Thanksgiving structure and the first one, they're in the situation that they are in presently. And by the second Thanksgiving, it's this time of real strife and everybody's world has been turned upside down somehow there's the story with mickey resolves and that resolves the stories for all of the other characters so at that point they come to some kind of understanding about the answers to their own questions and so by the time of the third thanksgiving it's a time of contentment mickey's story even though it feels somewhat isolated feels grander and it feels like it's tackling really big issues that everybody deals with the idea that destruction as a kind of form of salvation. I was just going to say, for me, it was... Um, and that's what you think the uh, the family characters are doing? Uh, that's what I think everyone does. I think even when Mickey gets his answer, he gets it because he's watching a Groucho Marx mm. Brothers movie, Duck Soup. Mm. Well, movies are a distraction. Mm. And that's what all the characters are. They're all distracted, healthily distracted, with these little questions that kind of are kind of the grain of their lives. What what Mickey contemplates is frightening. Mm. If you look into it, it's like looking into an abyss. And we've all been there. I remember when I was about 15, I kind of realized that I was going to die and that I didn't believe in God. It kind of all hit me at once and it terrified me. And I kind of stepped outside of myself and I kept saying to my parents, I'm not myself. I'm standing beside myself. I don't feel like I can feel anything anymore. I think what had happened to me was I was so stricken by the idea of my own mortality that I, I don't know, disappeared out of, outside of myself because it was too frightening to be inside my own skin. And my parents took me to therapists and would, you know, it was really bad for a while. And then I sort of, after about a year, just grew out of it. And I've never, ever considered it since. I, I do believe that when I die, that'll be it. <clears throat> and that'll be it forever. 
But um, but I I guess I somehow resolved that inside myself and and am now happily healthily distracted for the most part. How good is Mickey's? character's dad when he just goes I'll be unconscious or what a silly thing to think about yeah yeah, yeah. and it just he's just like what do I know? I'll be unconscious or I won't be whatever I'll, <laughs> like, it's it's so good yeah and I was gonna say there's some real kind of homeschooled common sense and wisdom in that as yeah. simple as it is we can't dwell on it and and that's ultimately what I think Mickey discovers and you know while Mickey's going through this he's not really living but all the other characters are living you know, they're going up and down, they're trying new things, they're falling in and out of love, they're, they're expressing their petty hurts and their jealousies and their affections, and they're feeling it. They're, they're living in the present. Mickey's not living in the present. He's kind of backed out of himself, and he's stepped back, and he's looking at this grand, terrifying notion of what it means to be alive. And it's only once he kind of lets go of that. And he has that beautiful line at the end. I watched this with her, and his favourite moment was when um, Woody Allen's telling Diane Weist about how he almost shot himself. I love that. I started to feel, how can you even think of killing yourself? I mean, isn't it so stupid? I mean, look at all the people up there on the screen. You know, they're real funny. And and what if the worst is true? What if there's no God and you only go around once and that's it? Well, you know, don't you want to be part of the experience? You know, what the hell? It's not all a drag. And I'm thinking to myself, Jeez, I should stop ruining my life searching for answers I'm never going to get and just enjoy it while it lasts. And, you know, after, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe there is something. Nobody really knows. I know know maybe is a very slim read to hang your whole life on, but that's the best we have. And then I started to sit back and I actually began to enjoy myself. It's something we haven't heard from Woody Allen before. He usually likes to leave us in limbo with that. But here he kind of gives us an answer, and that's really what separates Hannah and her sisters from everything else he's done. I'll bring it up again because I love it, but, you know, little Alvie Singer at the start of Annie Hall and that scene where he goes to the therapist's office and he stopped doing anything and his mum takes him there and he's worried because the universe is expanding (laughs) and one day it's going to blow up. Well, the universe is everything, and if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? When you start to think too much about life, you do get to the the centre of it, which is that ultimately we are going to die. and That's going to be it. And so there is this there is this meaninglessness of life, and I can see where, why he feels that way. I, I agree with him in a lot of respects. That's why I connect so so well with that movie in particular, but Woody Allen movies in general. He does. He kind of thinks about that stuff for you, puts it up on the screen, and you can deal with it. And there's not many films that can do it in a way that is accessible, mm-hmm. that isn't just completely dour and morbid. But he does it in a way that makes you kind of play with those ideas in a way that's not too threatening, doesn't make you feel too vulnerable. And that and that's a running thing through Woody Allen movies is that not only does he forget to live, but he chooses not to Yeah, because of the way that he's thinking. Hannah is emotionally stable, which is generally considered an attribute, but here we view it through a pretty oppressive lens. Why do we feel a certain hostility towards her and instead place our sympathies with the characters who are less together? We learn about her a lot of the time through a distance. So as an audience member, you kind of put her at a distance. I think I, I think she's ridiculously well played by Mia Farrow. I think she's the most level-headed one. In, and I guess you kind of, because you, you are rooting for these underdogs that are going around fucking everything up, the fact that she's so level-headed and 
Everything she says makes sense. Yeah. There is a certain passive aggressiveness, I think, to her with... Especially we see it with Holly. Yeah. I feel like she has a right to to say what she says in the dinner Mm. scene. I think so too. Mm. I just think it's interesting that someone could suffer from a surplus of (laughs) self-sufficiency. She's she's less likable. I think she's given less screen time, but I think that she's totally redeemed in the last scene when she says to Elliot, I have enormous needs. That's the first time you really see that character. And it's only once she's acknowledged that she does have needs is Elliot able to reinvest himself in the marriage so do you feel like uh she is uh kind of cold or distant or dismissive of all of her interpersonal relationships and therefore she gets what she deserves i don't think she get gets what she deserves because i don't think anyone deserves infidelity so that's what that's why you feel like uh elliot and maybe the other characters are blameless though because they have they are responding to the way that she is. Yes. I think that both characters, both Elliot and Holly, say to Hannah, we want to help. We want to know. Remember she says, I don't want to bother anyone? And then Holly says, I'd like to be bothered. Mm -hmm. If you are in a relationship with someone and they're telling you that their life is fine and you're telling them, well, I'm not sure about this and I feel a little bit lost and confused, that creates a kind of inequality to that relationship. There's an unspoken sense that the person you're with is superior to you because they've got all the answers. And that can be very oppressive. You start to feel like you can't acknowledge or admit that you're lost, that you have to put up some sort of front, that you're always okay, so that you can be on even footing with the person that you're talking to. If she had just acknowledged to some of those characters, well, actually, I have these doubts, I have these worries, then perhaps that would make it easier for everybody else to communicate with her on an even level. Hannah's the character I feel the most sorry for. I, I feel a lot of pain for her when I'm watching this movie, and it's because she's unaware, and I find that really heartbreaking. That that scene in the bathroom with Elliot is, is the best scene that she's in, I think. It's either that one or I think one of my favourite scenes in this film, aside from when Barbara Hershey reads the poem is uh, when the three are at dinner and the camera's just kind of circling them. I love how that builds and I love all of the different things that are playing in that scene. That's a brilliantly shot scene. I think the best performance in that scene is Barbara Hershey. Yes. It's interesting that Hannah is really together, but Holly and Lee aren't. And the few glimpses we get of their parents, it makes perfect sense why all of their children would be total fuck-ups because <laughs> these people are obviously very selfish, self-centred and uh, they kind of have a very dysfunctional marriage. The funny thing is that their parents kind of embody everything that's happening between Hannah and Elliot and Lee and to an extent Holly. They fight and they have other lovers or she does and yet they come back and at the end of the day they can talk about how beautiful this moment was at some point in their past and I think that there you don't see much of them but that there is kind of what's happening throughout the entire movie with every other character as well the film is filled with these awkward scenes where one character is imposing upon another and it's often very inappropriate how does Woody Allen successfully balance the comedy with those tensions the the comedy that's in there works really well Um, Even Mickey walking out of the doctor's office having been given the news that he doesn't have a brain tumour. He's walking, I think he jumps when he gets outside and then he's really happy and then he stops. 
And he realised that he's just going to die some other time anyway. Yeah. Move swiftly to the next crisis. Again, that's typical Woody Allen in all of his movies. If something gets resolved, something else comes up. There's this scene early in the movie and um, he's walking through the hallways of, I guess, this sketch show that he works on. And the producer comes up and says, take out the scene about child molestation. And he responds with, haven't you read the papers lately? Half the country's doing it. You know, it's a perfect introduction to Woody Allen's character in this movie. He's still going to be funny. I think Mickey, strangely, even though he's going through this huge crisis, life and death, could die, might have a brain tumour, he provides most of the comedy in this movie, far more than anybody else. His bad date with Holly is really funny (laughs) but when he meets her again in the record shop I think that scene is uh, really funny as well like he tells her I hope you've developed a personality since (laughs) our first date you know the the dialogue in that scene is so quick and fast and sharp and it's so well done and it's performed brilliantly by both of them and that's the scene where I think it's the happiest point of the movie because they've, they've only ever encountered each other. They hated each other. They come along, they're both laughing, they're both smiling, they're, they're giving each other crap, but they're happy about it. You know, you know this is a turning point for both of them. One thing that I love about the, the date that he has with Holly is that that's where we discover he got the hearing loss damage. Yeah, yeah. yeah that is such a good point. Yeah. Like I was like, I was just like, that is so fucking funny. The it fact is. that it's like something so arbitrary and incidental caused him to have this, you know, basically dictated the first half of the film of his his problem. And the whole film is kind of wonderful because it talks about that kind of messiness in life. That one silly little thing months ago can have huge ramifications later and that that's sort of how life goes. Yeah. I think the other scene, and if you watch it straight, it's really cringeworthy, is Michael Caine saying, I have my answer. Yes. <laughs> I'm walking on air. If you watch it. <laughs> so retarded. But if you watch it, like this is some kind of sociopath who's forcing this issue, it becomes quite funny. One thing that Woody Allen does a lot is he has his characters talk to themselves. Yeah. And you need very good actors to be able to do it. I mean, unless you've got someone like Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine who is unhinged and she's an amazing actress, so it, you totally buy it. But there were a couple of moments in this film where a character's talking to themselves and you're thinking, ah. And it's it's much better done when it's, you know, they're in the car and we hear Holly or Lee's thoughts and we see their reactions on their faces. That works far more seamlessly than the moments where Elliot is actually talking out <laughs> his feelings. I, so, so Michael Caine won an Oscar for this, right? Yeah. Yes. As I was watching it, though, again, I was like, oh, man, this scene... How did this stay in the movie? Which scene? The scene of Michael Caine walking out and saying, I have my answer. Oh, yes. It's not until, I guess, you you get to the point where he has sex with Lee and then goes to call her that same night and call it off. And she calls up and says, I feel so close to you. Yeah. And so he continues it. And it's not until that point that you understand that this guy, he is a bit crazy. He, you know, there is something not quite right there. So the fact that he went out on the street and said, I have my answer, I have my answer. And he really kind of pushed Lee into doing this with him. And he didn't really have an answer. No, and that's that's the other funny thing is he didn't have an answer. But but it's the fact that he's, you know, he's so unsure of himself that makes that scene in retrospect quite funny. Yeah, it does. And I think I think Michael Caine's fantastic in this movie. I think it's the quintessential Michael Caine role. 
He's awkward. He's fumbling. He's sort yeah. of intellectual. There's a kind of English stuffiness to but him as well. So, but he was so well known as being so suave. suave. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. He, he, he was in so many early movies. I mean, they say that he took on. <laughs> That's really my only frame of reference for Michael Caine. That and Jaws: The Revenge. He took on the Woody Allen kind of role. And by the way, Michael Caine was not at the Oscar ceremony to receive his award this year because he was shooting Jaws for The Revenge. Yeah. The way the inappropriate nature of how Elliot kisses Lee is an example of sort of how the drama and the comedy kind of obviously work because the fact that he's like essentially trying to commit adultery while Max von whatever is in the next room is a horrible act but the fact that he does it so retard like like so stupidly yeah. and so uh tactlessly yeah it's really funny um and, and that's like the best example of, a, of how of how you can sort of say but the how it's done is just because you you've been with Michael Caine's character for for so long so you you know he's a bit of a bumbling kind of uh, repressed kind of person and the fact that it just popped out is genuinely hilarious the fact that he kissed her like that is is really funny especially because he's doing that um voiceover just before about how he's got to be so careful about how he goes about doing this I've got to get her alone somewhere and then he pounces on her (laughs) mid-sentence he's like a cat pouncing for me I was struck by the idea of three being a crowd and how that kept playing into the film so obviously we've got you know the threesome with Elliot and his wife Hannah and her sister Lee and that's kind of mirrored with the whole April Holly David thing but then it keeps coming up like in the scene where um, they're both in the doctor's office talking about his infertility so there's now a third party coming into this marriage and that creates the tension and I think that it's really interesting that the movie plays with that idea and that idea of three kind of being an uncomfortable number Your slightest look easily will unclose me. Though I have closed myself as fingers, you open always petal by petal myself as spring opens, touching skillfully, mysteriously, her first rose. I do not know what it is about you that closes and opens. Only something in me understands. The voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. My absolute favourite line in the film is the last line of the film, which is, I'm pregnant. Because we know that, and, and really it's kind of an absurd moment of optimism, particularly for a Woody Allen movie. It's practically miraculous because he's been told that he's infertile. That's right. And, you know, he's sitting there and he kind of gives this summary of what we've seen. Isn't it weird that I started with Hannah and now I'm in love with you a year later? And I think that that's fantastic. And I love that she just listens to him and then with just utter gentleness says, I'm pregnant. And the movie ends on that note. It, it leaves you so buzzed when you when you finish that film there was this idea that maybe the ending was because he he is infertile and he can't provide children that maybe this was just kind of some red herring thrown into the ending to say that well everything's kind of fake at the end of it and that was Woody Allen's way of doing that Ah. Rather than rather than taking it literally, you take it that, oh, well, you know, this whole thing's a lie because he can't have children. Sort of like an idealistic fantasy yeah. about how life would yeah. go. I, I don't know. For me, the film so, is so grounded that I, I can't find a way to read it that way. Yeah. 
But I think that's really interesting yeah. to consider. It's over. This has I'm face to face with eternity. I'm quite large without being detected. Not later, but now. I'm so frightened I can't move, speak, or breathe. Well, you're just fine. There's absolutely nothing here at all. Gordon Willis tended to do very composed static shots, whereas here the camera tracks and and moves around a lot. That scene at the dinner table with the three sisters where it moves around like like you spoke about before is uh, one of the best visual scenes in this movie, I think. But I think there's uh, a lot of colour and life in this movie, even in the inside scenes, which typically are pretty drained for Woody Allen movies narratively i mean there's a lot of similarities between his old work still um alan's character mickey still self-deprecating melancholic hypochondriac um and despite this self-deprecation he's still very much an intellectual which is the role that he's always played uh there's the windsor typeface title cards which are in every woody allen movie there's the upbeat jazz score and the theme theme of meaninglessness of life and uh, interpersonal relationships. There's the setting of the art scene, and uh, most of the characters are intellectuals in this movie. Um, Woody Allen had been moving away from a lot of his earlier work in the decade before Hannah and Her Sisters, and I think Annie Hall was the first film to mark a, a major departure in that narrative style, and that was followed up with Interiors and Manhattan in that three-year period at the end of the 70s. And like Hannah and her sisters, they're a very good mix of drama and comedy. And there's that famous line from his 1980 film Stardust Memories, and his character is um, talking to some aliens about the human condition and about existence. Look, here's my point. If nothing lasts, why am I bothering to, to make films or do anything for that matter? We enjoy your films, particularly the early funny ones. Stardust Memories is one of my favourite Woody Allen films. And it's interesting that when it came out, it, it was sort of dismissed or derided because people felt that it was a personal attack. Woody Allen was attacking his fan base. Mm, yeah, because of lines like that. Yeah, and, and because his fans were all these kind of ugly characters, really odd faces, and they kind of and they really get in on the camera. The camera becomes um, his POV, mm-hmm. asking for signatures, asking for the most absurd things. Uh, but it's a really, really fun, interesting movie. You really Holly. think I'm a loser, don't you? But you're being ridiculous. You are, Holly. Stop it. You treat me like a loser. How? You never have any faith in my plans. You always undercut my enthusiasm. Not so. No, I think I've been very supportive. I, I try to give you honest, constructive advice. Oh. I'm, I'm always happy to help you financially. I think I've gone out of my way to, to introduce you to interesting single men. There's uh, losers. losers. Oh, All losers. You're too demanding. You know, I could always tell what you thought of me by the type of men you fixed me up You're with. crazy. That's not true. This is the first time that Woody Allen did an ensemble piece where it, it, it focuses on, you know... Yeah five or six different threads of characters. Yeah, I feel like I feel like he has um he has done that a little bit, but not to this extent. I mean he did call it the novel on film and it does have that, even the the different chapter headings essentially. At this point, as he had been in maybe the last five years, he was heavily influenced by European cinema and particularly Bergman, and he would continue to be influenced by Bergman throughout the next five years at least. 
and structurally, obviously, Hannah and Her Sisters is very similar to Fanny and Alexander, which was only released a few years before. And they both tell the story about dysfunctional theatrical families and they're all kind of bookended by these major life events in Fanny and Alexander. It's Christmas and in Hannah and Her Sisters, it's Thanksgiving. And at each point in the, both of those movies, they're at a different point of their story arc as well. So he took a lot of... Uh, I guess you could... You call it somewhat of a remake, but more it's just to use those films as inspiration. A lot of Alan's relationship dramas uh, to this point had obviously ended with separation, uh, Annie Hall and Manhattan, and despite all that happens in Hannah and her sisters, at the end of the movie, all three sisters are in relationships. And uh, I think there's, there's a great article on a website called Real Club about how Hannah and her sisters refuses to judge. And it says, typically the affair between Elliot and Lee must be exposed, either accidentally or through confession, for the audience to accept the film. Hannah may forgive her sister and husband or not. Either way, the audience would likely side with Hannah because she's been wronged by Lee and Elliot. Because the affair is not revealed, a very big wrong in the film is not rectified. And I feel like because of that, even though there is this happy resolution some of the stuff that happens during this movie is individually not resolved um, which is different than most Woody Allen movies where being dra relationship dramas everything comes out in the end and they deal with it and it has one effect or the other usually there's a, a bad effect and they break up but in this movie it's, it's very different because he's kind of accepting that these things happen and and life moves on and they don't need to be addressed sometimes to get a better result. I think it's like the specificity of what's going on between characters sort of takes a backseat in terms of thematic stuff in the end. Like it's not, it, it's weird. Like it is, it is at the forefront of the plot, but it's no, but it's not the centerpiece of the theme. If this film had been made in the forties, Elliot would have had to have been, killed at the end and Lee would have had to have devolved into prostitution they would have had some awful ends for these characters mm. so it, it it marks a you know the progress that we've made in terms of what is and is not allowed and it's funny because at the time obviously in the 80s there was this uh, rule in the you know horror slasher movies were real prevalent at that time as well and you know if somebody had sex they had to die so yeah. this is a difference from that as well which was around heavily at the time of Hannah and her sisters one of the best shot moments in the film is when Michael Caine contrives to intercept Lee on the street <laughs> we get these shots wide shots of her walking and then him <laughs> running uh, to sort of accidentally bump into her. She's going to an AA meeting because they give her comfort. I think it's really funny that both characters talk about that AA meeting. She's like, you should go. You'd really get a kick out of it. It's really great. Um, so throughout all of this film, there's these kind of little amoral things, but it's amazing how as a viewer, we, we forgive, overlook, are even kind of tickled by them because it's, it's done in, in a, with such a, a lightness and an exuberance. I did feel tickled. <laughs> the other thing is, like, you know, the character that um, Sam Waterson plays... David. David, that's right. Uh, he... I don't think it's, like, a coincidence that he happens to be an architect and likes all the beautiful 
buildings in the film as well like that part felt a little bit contrived to me because it was just it felt like this is Woody Allen showing me some of the beautiful architecture that he likes although I did love that sequence same actually and I agreed with all the pieces of architecture that they showed I'm like that's really bizarre that's really interesting that's really cool but I'm like why am I seeing this and I love Diane Weist um, what she thinks in the car (laughs) I I love that structure David oh I love the negative space David I hate April and that scene where um, April's talking about the theory of it behind all of these this architecture yeah I mean that's kind of painful to listen to I think during that scene you're mostly with Holly yeah and the scene where they're trying to decide who gets to get dropped off first is brilliantly awkward and funny love that scene yeah that's really good Um, well Well, I live downtown yeah we both live downtown oh it depends on what way you want to go you know what I know Uh, if well, if we took the if we took fifth, then then we would get to your house we first, could, yeah. Right. We could do that. Yeah, but fifth is so jammed, isn't it? I mean, well, some it's jammed. Time, if we went, some, this, um, uh, this you time. live in Chelsea, don't you? Yeah. Well, I, I guess if you live in Chelsea, that's probably first. Oh, okay. okay. And then April. Right. So, do we think the film would have been as good had it had the melancholic ending that Alan had originally conceived? No. Agreed. I think that it would have just been a, marked a real tonal shift and it would have just felt like this, you know, really insisted upon downer ending that the film did not need. Thank God that he compromised and that he did this because the film stands out from all those other films, like as you were say, Dang, saying, Damien, the end on that kind of wistful, bittersweet, melancholic thing, like Annie Hall, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Blue Jasmine, Interiors, you know, mo- all of them practically except for this film and it's really nice to have a Woody Allen film that finally answers that question that he's been putting to to us film after film after film about how do you live happily given what we know is coming and he does answer it and he answers it with um a real real eloquence and and uh a real beauty he said I remember Woody Allen said that he'd screened the original ending it was so downbeat and everybody was so disappointed every time he saw it and so he literally had to change it he was forced to change it for that reason because even he felt that and he's kind of notorious for uh, putting down the films that are most loved Mm. like Manhattan he asked them he said he would shoot it again for free if they didn't release Manhattan and of course that was released to the most acclaim that he'd had up to that point so you know he's not the best judge of his own work i don't think yeah i think uh, the ending uh with that real club article about uh, not being judged and wrongs not being righted the audience at least gets some satisfaction that all of the characters are involved in rewarding relationships at the end of the movie so if we'd gone for this other ending then i still think the wrong wouldn't have been righted because there still hasn't been this big confessional scene and also the audience isn't rewarded for with, with something that's actually rewarding for those characters. So I think that would have been why it was so disappointing at the time. Elliot, who's a character who I struggle with because I think he's pretty deplorable for a lot of the movie, he has that final scene which kind of redeems him to an extent so he has that final smile and embrace of Hannah who's still unaware of everything so Woody Allen hasn't judged his actions at all and so you're kind of told not to judge them yourself at that point because Hannah is happy (laughs) 
So, Damien, do you want to talk us through the release and reception of Anna and her sisters? So, Hannah and Her Sisters was released on February 7th, 1986 and was a box office hit. On just 54 screens, it averaged over $23,000, followed by $28,000 and $18,000 the next two weeks. In fact, after three weeks, it had played on a total of just 64 screens and already earned over $5 million. Ultimately, it stayed in the box office top 12 for more than four months, adding a few million each weekend until it finished with $40.1 million. It was his highest grossing film to date, marginally edging out Manhattan and Annie Hall and more than double everything else. In fact, it remained his highest grossing cinematic release for 25 years until it was surpassed by Midnight in Paris and it still ranked second. Critical reception was great. It's rated 93% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune said it was a work equal to Annie Hall and Manhattan and that he was a particularly great director of women. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times went one further, calling it the best movie Alan had ever made. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said, From the first soaring notes of Harry James's trumpet playing You Made Me Love You until the series of reconciliation scenes that bring the film to a close, Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters is virtually non-stop exhilaration, a dramatic comedy not quite like any other, and one that sets new standards for Mr. Allen as well as for all American movie makers. Pauline Kael, on the other hand, thought it was a minor film in Alan's canon and that said it had lost Alan's vital vulgarity. The critics were right, though, and the film won many awards. It won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy or Musical, the BAFTA for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, and Best Screenplay from the Writers Guild of America. It also won Best Film Awards from the New York and Los Angeles Film Critics Societies. In addition, it was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards and won Best Supporting Awards for both Michael Caine and Diane Wiest and Best Screenplay. All of that is pretty astonishing for a film released in the month of February, most of which are typically forgotten by the time award shows roll around 12 months later. And of course, Woody Allen is famous for never having personally accepted any of his Oscars. He's made one appearance at the award show in 2002 when he wasn't even nominated, and that was to represent New York City post 9-11. He wasn't present for when he won Best Director in 1978 for Annie Hall or for any of his other 23 nominations. So, guys, are we ready to do the quiz? Ready. All right, let's start with Chamomile. All right. Who did Woody Allen originally want in the role of Elliot, played by Michael Caine? <laughs> um, I, I think I actually have read this, but I don't remember. Damien? It's the sound of thoughts clattering in our heads. <laughs> it's the sound of heavy breathing. <laughs> I would just be throwing a name out to guess. So um, let's go with uh, Gregory Peck. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> what was he, 80 in the eight, in Bayer 1986? Uh, yeah. I just was, you know, just throwing a name out there. I guess it's wrong. Uh, Jack Nicholson. Oh, fuck, I did read that, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so we'll go to Damien. The film is notable for the way it blends contemporary and classical music for its score. Who was the classical composer whose music appears heavily in the film? 
You're both failing this month. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised at this one. Um, I don't know. Burt Baccarat? Buck. You didn't give me a chance to say that. Um, that did you know that, Cam? No. <laughs> That's what I said. Burt Baccarat. A then unknown actress is spotted in an early scene in the film when we first meet Mickey at the TV station. Who was that actress? Um... <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus. There we go, one zero. Oh, we're kicking the, we're getting the ball rolling, guys. We got a correct one. <laughs> Which cast member died before the film was released? Didn't we talk about this the other day? I don't know. If, if you did, that's collusion. <laughs> I believe it was the one that played Hannah's mother. Maureen Stapleton. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Nolan as Evan, the father, and Cameron Newitt, so he gets that point. So we're on, what, 2-0 now? Yeah. How the hell am I winning on this? <laughs> Cameron, what is the name of the poem Elliot tells Lee to read because it reminds him of her? I know it's by E.E. E. Cummings. I can't think of, I can't remember what it's called. Somewhere I have never travelled. After shooting a particular scene, the crew gave the two actors in it a standing ovation. What was that scene? What was the particular scene? Uh, that would be the scene between Michael Caine and Mia Farrow. No. <laughs> Cameron? Oh, I don't actually, actually, I don't know if I remember. Um, well, I've just deleted one of the scenes for you. Perfect, yeah. Um, is it the Max von Sydow and uh, Lee breakup scene? It is, yes. <gasps> Diane Weist won the first of two Oscars playing in Woody Allen, Woody Allen films. What was the name of the film she won her second Oscar for? Law and Order SVU. Bullets over Broadway. Yes! Uh, Many thought Hannah was the best film of 1986, but Woody Allen himself didn't think so. What film did he think was the best film of that year? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Terms of Endearment? Cameron? No. He thought Blue Velvet by David Lynch was the best film of that year. Alright guys, so out of five... Cameron? Uh, I'm giving it three and a half. That seems very small. Do you want to explain yourself? I just didn't have a huge connection with the film. I, I got that it was a Woody Allen film straight away because it's a Woody Allen film. And I, I, just something about it just didn't... I think some uh, parts were quite good and quite... Um, I think it was impeccably acted, but all of, most of his films are. I did, I, other than the existential stuff, I didn't really have a huge amount of um, tie with the film. I just, I, I didn't, it didn't feel like his best to me. Like I, like I have seen Annie Hall and I have seen Manhattan, and I, I, I like those films much, much more. Okay, Damien. Well, it's my second favorite Woody Allen movie, and I give it five stars. Me too. I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> There's nothing about it I would change. And that wraps up our episode of Celluloid Junkies. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Join us again next month as we take a look at Alfred Hitchcock's voyeuristic thriller, Rear Window. Maybe give it another watch if you haven't seen it in a while. Until then, we wish you a lovely life and we'll catch you in April. Thank you. Thanks. People around me having fun, enjoying themselves, and I want to say, but don't you realise you're going to go up in a smokestack, you know, in a short while? So why are you so happy? I mean, doesn't that thought sort of put a damper on things? I'm not saying my grim appraisal is right. Of course, I think it is. But this was only my particular take on everything, that we all know the same truth, and our lives consist of how we choose to distort it. 
So bewildered. 